No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I'm going to attach you back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country because these players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to our Hello and welcome to the Trade the Back podcast. Thank you for listening wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe rate and review and help us along the way. This week I'm joined by Enda Higgins and Phil Green. How are you lads? All good, thanks. Evening lads. Good evening. In part two we'll talk about the fantastic 1-1 draw for the Ireland women's team against Sweden which very much keeps our World Cup hopes alive there. To put that result into context, the last time Sweden dropped qualification points at home was 12 years ago in 2010 against Czech Republic. Um, And they're essentially so confident in their abilities that they embedded instructions on how to beat them in their new home jersey there a few weeks ago, which caught headlines. Well, clearly Ireland and Vera Powell did their homework and delivered one of the biggest results, um, I suppose, if not the biggest result in uh, the uh, team's history. Lads, speaking of big results, um, I'm talking about Champions League knockout madness of a, of a Tuesday evening. Yeah, you can't beat it. Chelsea winning 3-2 on the night, but uh, an extra time, Karen Benzema goal getting Real over the line over two legs, 5-4 on aggregate. Um, a hell of a tie. And I, I think probably the main takeaway um, over the course of the two games is is how is Luka Modric getting better at 36 years of age? Uh, absolutely incredible stuff. Um, <clears throat> just when Madrid needed something last night, when nothing had really happened, when it seemed like they were completely collapsing, um, he just produced that moment of pure and other class um, and it even goes as far back as, as the PSG game and um, when they were when they were producing the comeback in, in that tie it was Modric who was tearing through the center of the pitch like a much much younger man actually in a way that he probably didn't do all that much when he was younger either you know it's not exactly the, the type of skills that you would have associated with when he was a younger man but um he, he certainly seems to be um to be reveling in kind of the big the big moments for Madrid um, and I think like between himself and Benzema they're kind of setting uh, they're setting the standard for for what we can expect from this Madrid team, um, and I, like I think you know, there's there's people who are probably doing a bit of the work for them in the kind of dirtier moments. Let them do, uh, let them shine a little bit. But Jesus Modric, that pass last night, how he was in the first leg, how he was against PSG, he's putting together a serious serious run in these knockout stages. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how he gets on against City or or Atletico in the in the semis. Yeah, especially when you look at especially Tony Cruz's impact on this Madrid side, which was so important when they, you know, were so successful in Europe, and that just seems to have, you know, really uh, dissipated. But uh, I think a lot of credit goes to Camavinga as well. He he had a good cameo against PSG, and I thought he was very good last night when he came on, and it just seemed to his energy in the middle of the pitch seemed to give Modric a bit more time and space to kind of do what he he had to do. But it was just. Such a phenomenal assist, considering the time of the match. I mean, Madrid were just completely flat. 
and Chelsea were all over them. Uh, and it was one of those assists where it looks good at the moment, but you watch it 10 times over and it gets better and better. And I was watching it back again this morning and it was just absolutely phenomenal considering, uh, you know, he had to play it in behind those two Chelsea players at the back post and landed at, on Rodrigo's foot. So it was an incredible moment and it really changed the game. I, I don't think Chelsea fully recovered after that. They were not as confident as fast. Uh, I don't think Chelsea subbed helped either, to be honest. None of them really had an impact uh, in terms of Saul and, and Ziyech. But uh, no, it was just a great Champions League night all around and you know, really enjoyable match. Mm. I suppose like we were talking about it last week um, when Tuchel basically wrote, wrote his side off. I think he said there was no chance of coming back. Um, and we found out a little bit weird. I mean, it was only a two-goal deficit. Um, stranger things have happened um, over the course of two legs in the Champions League. But I thought over the course of last night that Chelsea could have absolutely no excuses. Um, you know, they were all over for Madrid for huge parts of the game, especially in that first half. Um, probably in looking out to be uh, more than one goal up at, at half time. And I mean, when you get a goal out of Timo Werner, you know your luck must be in. Um, I thought it was going to my, my life flashed before my eyes every time he uh, he took another touch, uh, kind of uh, side and over until he eventually took the shot. I thought he'd never score, but um, I thought uh, coming out of that game, the Chelsea could have absolutely no excuses. They missed so many chances not to not to go out and win it overall. Yeah, completely. I mean, like Madrid totally outplayed Chelsea for the first forty-five. Um, in the in, out of the entire tie, as in in the first leg, and obviously you hit that kind of um that third goal very early in the in the second half in the first leg. But outside of that, Chelsea can feel legitimately that they were relatively on top for like three of the forty three of the four forty fives, um, and that they 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 should have probably come should have been traveling to uh, to Madrid with a better than a three one deficit. And you're absolutely right; definitely should have gotten more. Than just the three goals we got last night, which which says a lot as well about um, the, the state Madrid were in as well. Because I think as good as as good as Chelsea maybe were, you probably shouldn't be able to get into that position on a team with a three one lead and playing at home. If you know what I mean, so there's probably a bit against going against Madrid there. But definitely, I think Chelsea had their chances. I know Tuchel was exceptionally pissed off with the ref having a laugh and a joke with Carlo uh, after the game. He like he really reminds me of Klopp and how bad of a loser he is. Like he fucking is a bollocks when he does. He hates it. Like he's such a child, exactly the way Klopp is. But I think Tuchel, when he looks back on the tape today, like you said, Kev, I don't think he'll be able to point to the ref overly. I think he'd be better off pointing some of his players because uh, even allowing for VAR getting particularly particular, uh, I think they probably had enough uh, on their own steam to to be sitting in semi-finals today. Germans being bad losers. Are we allowed to mention that thing from the forties? Or, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, it's strange. It's just such a missed opportunity for Chelsea, considering how, especially in that first half, how incredible they were. And, and you look at that Madrid side. You know, missing Militao. I think Carvajal and Mendy had really bad nights at fullbacks. I think Vinicius had one of his most uh, ineffective games of the season, and Benzema only really came to life in extra time. So. Everything was there for Chelsea and, and they were playing it almost perfectly. And, and again, I would just go back to the, the impact of the subs, really, if you compare Camavinga to, you know, Chelsea's subs. I, I think the VAR handball, it's, you know, we were chatting about it last night in terms of how ridiculous the rule is. You know, if somebody kind of punches yeah. it as an assist, you know, it seems to sand. But if it flicks, you know, your fingernail and you score and you're the scorer, it, it you know, it goes against you. Um, you know, I, I know... 
Keen, who's a friend of the show, uh, kind of is thinks that a strict handball rule is the way to go. But I think if it's not intentional, which it clearly wasn't for Alonso last night, you know, that's the way I would always look at it anyway. Um, but the rule is pretty strict around that. So, you know, according to the law, not to state the obvious as Peter Walton would, even though he got it wrong again last night, as he always seems to do when he makes his 10 second horrific cameos, uh, I thought. You know, VAR has to unfortunately stick to that stupid law, but it's something I'd like to see reviewed at some point. Um, but a, a huge missed opportunity for Chelsea, considering how, um, you know, I, I think how tactically spot on they got it. I mean, and Tuchel himself, you know, uh, there was that moment in the first half where uh, Loftus-Cheek let the ball slip under his foot. And I've never seen a manager freak out as much as that since maybe Fergie against Johnny Evans in 2010 or something in the San Siro. Like he was as up for it as I've ever seen a manager be in a, in a Champions League tie. And that really, you know, reflected what they were doing on the pitch as well. So um, I think obviously you'd have to give them a lot of credit in terms of how they try to defend the title on the night. But uh, I, I just think those subs in the end um, probably just made the difference considering, you know, Madrid's bench wasn't even that strong, but, you know, Camavinga compared to the impact that Chelsea subs had for me, that's where uh, those fractions changed the game for Madrid. Yeah, I'm surprised um, Saul uh, saw the pitch. He seems to have the worst cameos of all. Um, I think he's been he's been hauled off at halftime a couple of times now at this stage since he he joined on loan. Um, I suppose just back on on Carlo Ancelotti. That's four decades in a row now where he's um, reached the Champions League semi finals. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen the graphic going around, but it's uh, it's four kind of television screenshots of of each period and. The, the graphics get progressively slicker as the as the years go on and and more high def um all the way back to his time at Juventus uh, in the 90s uh, and Milan and then Real Madrid obviously um I suppose uh, and you kind of touched on it there in the um a com- a conversation uh Kevin Doyle and Stephen Kelly had on on the RTE coverage last night in relation to Tuchel was you know he was jumping around he was so um kind of active on the sideline and it nearly kind of rubbed off in Chelsea you know they were nearly kind of manic in how they played and it near it, it, it felt like the 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 manager's kind of um flailing around was kind of rubbing off in the, on their performance whereas Cancelotti was more kind of you know cool and 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 stepped off and and you know he's kind of more, a lot more suave as, as we've come to know over the years and Kevin Doyle was kind of saying you know he would have hated to to look to the sideline uh, and seeing his manager uh, so upset and screaming and roaring, and you know, you had the Loftus Cheek incident. But I suppose you know, when things are going well, and you've a, a Pep or a Klopp doing similar, it's you know, there's probably pros and cons to 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 how you're performing. But I suppose last night, if you were Chelsea out there and you're very much under the cosh, uh, and you're in the big, huge Champions League tie, and you know, you're against the side that's been there and done that so often over the years, uh, it mustn't have been a. a, a a huge kind of um, positive, positive kind of, you know, outlook on how you're performing to, to, to look to the sideline and see Tuchel going absolutely back and mad. Yeah, I don't know if it's a, if it's a legacy of uh, that Dortmund game in the Europa League against Liverpool that he was manager for, but I and like it goes against what his very recent record in Champions League, which is really good. But I do see him as a manager who it's possible to get at and. That he can be, a, he can be kind of a bit shook and get a bit kind of overboard and a bit kind of tantrumy sometimes. Like that, that that night uh, when Liverpool came back against Dortmund, 
his press conference, he was like properly, genuinely shook. I mean, like beyond what's normal for a manager in a heart, in a situation like that, where they're after been kind of shocked by a comeback, like he genuinely seemed physically put out by it. And I don't know, I've always just got this sense that like a lot of the Klopp stuff, especially feels kind of performative and um, the Pep stuff, I don't know, Pep must be a bit weird, but like I with Tuchel, I I or like Mourinho, I think is a really good example of somebody who was totally fucking performative on the line. Yeah, like that that classic gif from his time at Spurs when they're he's sitting down laughing and then absolutely in the artificial face with the yellow card, like totally performative, totally predetermined. I get the sense of Tuchel, he can be a little bit out of control sometimes, um, and like you said, I think that can that can transmit that sort of energy, especially if it's not part of the plan, and especially with how surgical Chelsea are and how kind of particular they are if he loses the head that system kind of goes a little bit and they're looking for a little bit of reassurance with someone like a Klopp you know the the, the expectation from the team is that it's you know the quote-unquote heavy metal football whether that's true or not it kind of feeds in a little bit better but for Tuchel when he does lose the rag a little bit like that I, I, I think he's susceptible to it and um, if things aren't going particularly right like I said he's quite an emotional guy um, and I, I do think it played into it last night for sure. Yeah, like I kind of like it though. Um, in, in you know, especially in, in you know, not to bring everything back to United all the time, but we've had a lot of very flat managers on the sidelines in the past decade, uh, and sometimes teams do need to be inspired. And I do think this Chelsea team are not so much an image of Tuchel per se, but they've certainly you know taken everything on board since he's come in, compared to obviously Lampard and Sarri in particular, where you know there seemed to be no connection at all between the players, the fans. Uh, the coach and you know maybe Tuchel has recognised that in the same way Klopp did in fairness as soon as he came to Liverpool the reason he did that West Brom celebration that infamous one at the time he did say after the match that listen the fans and the players there's just no connection there at the moment and I need Mm. to rebuild that Um, I think with Tuchel it's, it's probably a little more emotional it's not as kind of tactical or as you know planned as as Klopp or certainly Mourinho um uh it's more out of the Guardiola school of just being frustrated in the moment and and at times it probably does go too far but uh I think you know considering how well Chelsea did play last night I don't think it can be uh, too much of a criticism uh in this particular game maybe it goes against them in other games and it certainly went against Dortmund that night uh in Anfield uh but overall I think you know I, I like the fact that he's so invested in the game and in fairness, he has a fantastic record of, you know, getting players on his side. I mean, there's that famous kind of Mkhitaryan relationship that he had where he completely changed his mindset towards, you know, his nervousness in the game, his anxiety on the pitch and, you know, changed his career, really. Um, and that's that's the type of man manager that he is. He's very kind of connected emotionally to the players. And I think part of their mistakes, especially when somebody as technically good as Ruben Loftus-Cheek lets the ball roll under his foot on the sideline. I think he's just, you know, mortally wounded by such a good player making such a, a basic error. I don't think it's pure anger at at the situation. I just think it's kind of almost this, you know, mm. unbelievable disappointment that's not necessarily directed at the player at that moment. So um, it's probably a, a bit overboard for the neutral, but I, I think if I was a Chelsea fan, you know, I'd much rather that than, you know, Sarri smoking 40 cigarettes on the side and, you know, shrugging <laughs> his shoulders as they, you know, get beaten by Solskjaer or somebody like that, you know. So um, I, I think it works overall for this Chelsea team. Obviously, they've not had, you know, as good a season as they would have hoped after winning the Champions League. But I, I, I do think what he's building with that, 
you know, that front three, especially with Havertz and Mount, and, and they just need somebody to kind of link that all together as, a, you know, a quality number nine that's probably a level above, certainly Werner and the Lukaku stuff hasn't worked out. But overall, I really like what Chelsea are trying to do. And you can see the direction that they're moving in. And, and I think, you know, it was a phenomenal performance last night. And I, I really enjoyed everything about them, including Tuchel's antics. Speaking of suave managers then, lads, and absolutely the, the shock of the competition so far, um, and probably one of the, the stories uh, across European football this season is absolutely Villarreal getting past Bayern Munich. Um, and, and just looking at Unai Emery's uh, European knockout uh, form over the past couple of years, a Europa League winner in 2014, 15 and 16, Champions League uh, last 16 and 17 and 18, um, Europa League finalist in 2019, won it again last year, and now a Champions League semi-final this year with Villarreal. Um, and I mean, he's always been a fantastic manager and probably, you know, absolutely a, a kind of a, a knockout cup competition manager rather than a, a sustaining too much uh, in terms of league form. But uh, finally starting to get a lot of credit. Um, obviously, you know, it's easy to laugh like, Jesus, why did Arsenal sack him um, when they did? And, um, you know, he could easily be uh, be in a relegation dogfight with Newcastle at the moment. But um, he's earning his flowers now and you, you have to admire him for, for what he's achieved at, at Villarreal. Um, when you consider the team that they have out there um, and um, in terms of the size of the place, I think it's, it's smaller than the Galway, it's smaller than Limerick it's, and uh, very much punching above their weight against uh, some of Europe's heavyweights. Yeah, like it's great. I mean, I think we've seen... Uh, as is typical for Twitter, extreme reactions kind of on both sides. So you've got um, people like Arsenal fans doubling down on, on how useless he was. And then people like Ilan Balagay basically saying, well, actually, he's fucking better than, you know, any coach in the world or whatever. And like the truth is that he's well suited to a club like Villarreal or Seville, Sevilla, where maybe the pressure isn't on, like you said, a full league season or, um, or maybe delivering at the very, very, very top of the European game, like PSG and and his and his struggles there, and um, he is suited to kind of slightly underdog teams and cup competitions, and he is very good at it. I've seen a lot of I think accurate comparisons, not in style, but in like the, the arc of career between him and David Moyes today, and that like Moyes was obviously a fucking disaster at United, a disaster at Chelsea, disaster at Sunderland, but um, at at Everton and West Ham he fits, and in the same way. Emery had really bad goings at PSG and Arsenal, uh, but fit like a glove at Sevilla, and now uh, is obviously reestablishing himself with Villarreal. Um, so, it, like, I, I think it's good. I think anytime a manager has such a rough trot, especially the, the kind of trot he got against Arsenal or at Arsenal, when it was largely down to the fact that he pronounced a word funny, um, as like you know, the performance on the pitch weren't great, but it was mostly the fact that he said "good evening." Like that was the banter. That was the banter accounts attacking him. You know, the, the betting accounts and all the rest of it. Um, so it's nice to see a manager with clear capabilities coming back and showing what he can do on a, on a stage like this. And it's also funny that he did it against such a fashionable, well-fancied, well-tailored manager like Nagelsmann. Like, you know, that's objectively funny that, you know, this kind of next superstar in management gets overturned by this relatively unfashionable, greasy-haired Spaniard who everyone thought was past his best. Like, that's always going to be fun. Yeah, just to... Go back to Kevin's original point about suave managers. Are we calling Emery suave? Because that's a lot of grease for a suave manager. So I'm. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm coming down against you know, that. I'm, I'm coming down against the suaveness there. Yeah, like, no, he's well dressed, but, you know, like, I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, that face and hair, let's, I don't know. 
I mean, he's not Carlo, put it that way. If if I had to carry somebody shopping, I'm carrying Don Carlos over Emery's. But anyways, um, what's interesting of Villarreal, I suppose, is their league form has been extremely patchy. And I've seen a few people actually, you know, certainly Colin Miller and a few of those uh, point that out today, considering, you know, they have become a bit more of a buying club than they used to be. Um, even though they've spent really well, especially last summer with Dan Juma and, and one fight is probably playing the best football of his career after looking like a bit of a disaster at Spurs and, and, and the performances they've gotten out of La Celso since joining in January have been you know, phenomenal. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. He's certainly lacking the consistency in La Liga that I think Villarreal would have hoped they would have considering you know they have become one of those clubs who standardly push for a European place every season now. Um, so, you know, domestically, I don't think he's getting quite as much praise as he is across Europe. But the way they approached both legs against Bayern was, you know, absolutely perfect. They're actually quite unlucky only to get 1-0 at home. Uh, and, and last night, Bayern really, really struggled to... I know uh, statistically they had a lot of chances, but, you know... It just wasn't the same Bayern dominance you would expect in a second leg of a Champions League tie. You know, the same way they um, pulled Salzburg apart in the first 20 minutes. And, you know, I, I was watching the Bayern game at the weekend and, and they only won with a lay penalty at home. And there just was something a little off. And, and then you look at the fact that they had this 3-4-3 with Coleman as a wing back when, you know, that, that standard kind of 4-3-1-2. Um, with Muller as a number 10 um, or sorry 4-2-3-1 with Muller as a 10 and kind of Nabry and, and Sané either side of Lewandowski basically won them a Champions League with Kimmich and um, Gretzky in behind and you know a lot of those players played last night but you know having this three at the back formation which hasn't really worked out for Bayern considering they lost 4-1 in the league a few weeks ago playing that same formation St. Patrick's weekend so I was very surprised with their their approach it was very naive but uh, that aside, I, I think Villarreal deservedly went through, uh, you know, over the course of the two legs. Whether they can repeat that against Liverpool, all going well for you that they get through tonight. Um, I know what you're uh, doing there, yeah. Andrew. That's an attempt at a jinx. I <laughs> yeah, know absolutely. what you're doing. Absolutely. That lineup, you know. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But, uh, no, I think they deserve huge credit. And they've got this nice blend of experience with Coughlin and, and Preco in the middle there. Uh, Pau Torres is really... You know, he's one of those players who definitely ups his game in Europe compared to his domestic performances. Same with Anjuma. Um, so there's definitely a lot of positives there going forward. So I think, yeah, I think the ridicule he got at Arsenal was ridiculous. And certainly Sky Sports in particular didn't help him at all. Uh, so I'm glad that he he's kind of getting his own back a little bit. Um, but uh, whether they'll do enough <laughs> in the next leg, um, I'm, <laughs> I, I quite doubt it. But it would be fun if they did, I think. It sure would, uh, for a lot of neutrals, I'm sure, to, to see Villarreal go one step further. Um, I'll give you that, uh, so on, on terms of Unai Emery and, and my suave comment. Um, but Enda, I don't think you can escape the uh, the potential of what can be said about Eric Ten Hag, now that he's a, a United <laughs> boss, um, with, a, with a lot of the bald fraud comments that uh, could easily come further down the line. I saw uh, someone tweeted that... Um, it's the first time in history that Manchester City and Manchester United both have had bald managers. Um, so but that, that can't be true. Like, can that be true? Surely City had a bald manager sometime during Busby. Like, I was just. Anyways, um, I didn't put in the effort to look that up. But Squawk had tweeted, which are a, a reliable source from yeah. all accounts. I know they're they're uh, they're verified on Twitter, which uh, which which uh, doesn't say much these days. 
But um, it looks like you have your man, uh, and it looks like potentially we, we might find out sooner rather than later if uh, if uh, Donny Van der Beek is any good or not. Yeah, uh, like we we discussed last week, obviously that he was the probably the riskier op- option over Pochettino, but potentially more exciting in terms of uh, what he could do, especially with the quality coming through in the academy and. There was a really good piece about him this morning in the Athletic, actually. I don't know if you, you had a chance to look at that, but, um, you know, he's become one of these really hands-on coaches who physically, you know, stops training sessions to give players instructions. So very Pep-esque in that regard. I'm not sure that'll suit a lot of the players at United at the moment, but considering half of them will probably be gone by the time he comes in um, or be put up for sale, I don't think that's relevant at the moment. But, uh yeah, I mean it's it's a huge leap still to go to come from Eredivisie to um, the Premier League. We've seen it with players, we've seen it with managers. Um, but when you look at anybody who's worked with him for a, a period of time, they talk about somebody who's completely obsessed with you know the game, and and he sees it certainly in a different way to to most how most other people see it. You know, Steve McLaren said when he came in. And he was his assistant manager. He said he'd never worked with anybody before or since who has such, you know, an eye for detail and can read the game as well as he can um, at pitch level. So, um, you know, and that was really critical to to go for them to go on and win a title. So, uh, I think it's it's a really interesting appointment. I think he's probably a manager on the up, which is strange for a guy in his mid fifties, but he's you know still relatively young in managerial terms, anyways. And you know, at the time he was. He did take on a big job in Ajax, which is you know the biggest job in Dutch football apart from the national team. And there were a lot of doubts over him at the time. It was a, a, an appointment directly from Overmars as opposed to coming from the Ajax board. Um, and after a slow start there, they, they're probably going to win their third league in, in four years. And, and obviously the, the performances they've had in Europe, I think, are really where he's come to the fore. They were very unlucky, actually, to get knocked out by Benfica. They were, it was one of those weird ties where you know, they were the dominant team for about 170 of the 180 minutes. So, uh, And obviously a few years ago, uh, beating Juventus and Real Madrid and, and should have beaten Spurs. So I think there's, he's got a lot of credit in the bank. He'll need a lot of patience, obviously, considering the massive turnover that we're going to see at United this summer and, and probably not much investment. So you, you would think that the talent coming through at under 18, especially under 23 level, some of them will have to be part of the plans and whether we bring James Garner back from Nottingham Forest and, you know, Palistri from Alaves, Diallo from Rangers, obviously there's there's going to be a natural uh, incoming of hopefully young, enthusiastic players there, which is where Ten Hag seems to really uh, come to the fore. So overall, I'm, I'm quite excited, which is hard to be excited about anything related to United at the moment because this is certainly the most difficult season I've I've experienced in my certainly adulthood following them 2014 was a bit of a struggle but uh, this has been far worse for several reasons on and off the pitch so um, there's a huge reboot required you know across the entire club and it's it's not going to happen just with Ten Hag we need to we need to see how this Fletcher Murtaugh Ranić situation develops over time and you know a lot of broken promises as usual from the Glazers and there's going to be another protest this weekend so We'll see if anything comes off the back of that. But uh, overall, I'm 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 looking forward to seeing, you know, just how he tries to implement his ideas in the squad and who he feels, you know, is worth hanging on to. And you know, as you said at the start, Van der Beek, you'd imagine would play a role in that, considering how close a relationship they had at Ajax in the past, and and the fact that there will be a positioning opening up from 
uh, with Pogba obviously leaving Lingard, leaving Mata, a few others. Um, I'm not sure McTominay will be his style of midfielder either. So uh, you'd, you you would think that Van de Beek will come back from you know a mediocre loan spell at Everton because of injury and and reset his career as well. So there's that's just one of the many stories of we have to find out how it goes. But uh, you know overall, I think it's a relatively brave appointment by United standards um, because he is somebody who demands full control over what he's trying to do at a football club. Um, and, you know, we might have just lied to him like we did with Mourinho and LVG at the time. <laughs> That's not inconceivable, but um, I think this does feel a little bit different this time considering we're, you know, entering almost a decade without, you know, a league title and, and almost six years without any sort of silverware at all. So, yeah, um, I'm looking forward to it. Mm. Dare I say, you know, Phil, in terms of the timing, as, as Enda was trying to explain there, that the timing does feel right for this kind of risk. Um, when you look at the age profile of, of United squad, some of the players starting to get up there. Um, I think the penny's starting to finally drop with a, a lot of players that, you know, we know aren't good enough for, for this level. Um, and dare I say, this appointment seems to me, um, you know, the caveat if they haven't lied to him to, to get him in the door, uh, a little bit cloppish in, 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 you know, what he demands from, from the structure around the club, the, the power that he wants over um, transfers and, and player personnel. It seems like he set his demands out and he hasn't kind of reneged on any of that to, to, be, uh, to be appeased in any way. Um, I just think, you know, reading some stories today that, you know, uh, apparently, Ronaldo vetoed the uh, the the Conte uh, supposed uh, appointment. I'm sure there was probably a clashes over over Solskjaer as well. Um, that this feels like uh, a little bit, maybe you know, when uh, that when Klopp came on board, that it did feel like the reset button was being hit. It would take a little bit of time to kind of uh, restructure everything. Um, and I suppose, you know, United have to play ball on their side and, you know, not lie to him, you know, give him all the needs uh, and make sure that the player power uh, kind of evaporates to a certain extent and he can kind of mould the club in how he sees, which I suppose is what United has been missing for, for so long now. Yeah, I mean, like, I hate to see United making moves that I agree with because I much prefer when they make terrible decisions and it works out terribly for them because Alex Ferguson ruined my childhood and now I'm happy to see them have kind of 30 years of their own struggles but I think that this is a smart appointment I think the decision between him and Potch I think there's more scope for kind of growth and development here Potch is a much more known factor and maybe in like a two-year term Potts might end up doing better than Ten, than, than Ten Hag will. But over five years, I think Ten Hag could end up leaving United in a better place, if, if that makes sense. Um, I completely get the idea of the Klopp comparison. And, I, and listen, I'm not saying that Ten Hag is gonna is not a better manager than this guy, but it actually reminds me a little bit more of the Rodgers appointment for Liverpool. And, and, and before you have a heart attack, I'm not saying Ten Hag is going to run away with a secretary or buy up like, you know, a hundred slums across the UK. <laughs> but what, what kind of what I mean is they're taking a punt on somebody who has shown incredible capabilities to a certain point, but who is an unknown quantity and probably more of an unknown quantity than they have appointed in a long time. Notwithstanding that Solskjaer didn't have exactly have the managerial CV, but he, you know, club DNA and all the rest of it. 
but he's a relatively young manager. Obviously, he's actually older than Pep, which feels a bit weird. But anyway, um, he's a relatively young manager who is making a massive step up, as Enda said, in the same way or in a similar way to, to Rodgers making a big step up to Liverpool. I'm not, again, I think Ten Hag is a much better manager now than when Rodgers got the Liverpool job. And I think he's a much better manager now than Rodgers is now. But it, it feels like a little bit of a gamble, but the sort of one that I think United should roll the dice on. Um, notwithstanding, I, or sorry, I think part of feeding into that is if the decision was only Ten Hag or Poch, you're kind of lacking that real X factor that like Klopp was a Bundesliga winning Champions League final manager who Liverpool kind of knew was the outstanding candidate. Um, he, w- he was somebody you could build a club around and probably knew that he could bear it. You don't know for sure Ten Hag can, which is where the, the gamble is. But I think with the profile of squad United have, with the way things have been going, with the cushion that they have in terms of they are comfortably enough in terms of the commercial model that they have, they can probably take this risk and this profile of risk. I think it's a, re- I think it's a smart decision. I think it's a brave decision. But as Enda said, it's going to live or die by the structures that go in around them. What they, what they allow them to, how they allow them to do his job <clears throat> and the clear out of the squad, because I think it's like, it just take a genius to figure out. It's not, a, it's not a happy camp at all there. It's a little bit poisonous at the minute. I don't know if any of you saw Bearded Genius uh, on Twitter was tweeting a while ago, uh, like, you know, forecasting into August 2022 that the, the, um, the players will be briefing the press about Ten Hag's training methods and his question his tactics and stuff. And you could see very easily if the clear out isn't done right. As Enda said, there'd be a few people there pissing the moaning about what he asks. But I think it's a worthwhile gamble. And unfortunately, I think it could really work out for them. Yeah, well, listen, if Ten Hag leaves the club with great teeth and a young blonde, I mean, would he really argue <laughs> like Rodgers did at Liverpool? Don't forget, second in the league, don't forget. <laughs> and second in the league, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but again, like, you know, I think Klopp and Liverpool, that was, you know, a more perfect marriage in, in all sense than a- any manager will be for United at the moment. And obviously, Mickey Edwards, as we've discussed a million times in the WhatsApp group, I mean, their relationship was key to everything that Liverpool have built in the past five years under Klopp. And, you know, you know, United could bring in the absolute perfect sporting director, which they absolutely will not do. And I still don't think it'll be as influential as what Edwards and Klopp have built together. That's how perfect that relationship has been. But um, yeah, ultimately, you would hope that, you know, Ranić and Fletcher and Murtaugh, none of them have the ego or the insanity or the parasite nature that Woodward had when he was in the role of whatever it was he was trying to do or prove. Um, so for me, Woodward somehow not being around still makes things better and, and more hopeful. Um, and the fact that Ten Hag was, you know, the only reason he was digging his heels and not accepting verbally weeks ago was the fact that he wanted confirmation that he would get to come in and say who he gets to kick out of the club, essentially, um, which I think is a huge part of what United need at the moment. And in fairness, Klopp pretty much did the same at Liverpool when you look back at his early starting lineups and, you know, it, it was pretty obvious who we need to get rid of at the time as well and, and who would likely flourish under him. Uh, and and it, it worked out that way. And I think you can kind of, you know, make those decisions, you know, as uh, as a passing watcher as well of this United squad in terms of who needs to be persisted with going forward and who needs to get out of the club immediately. So um, if Ten Hag is allowed to do that, um, throwing into the fact that the under-23s and the under-18s are playing certainly the best quality of football I've seen from United U teams progressively 
you know, that I can remember. Uh, I know that they've certainly won youth cup, won youth cups in the past in, in 2003 and 2011, but this entire group or academy as a group, you know, some of, some of the performances we're getting out of, you know, McNeil, Hoogle, Maynou, you know, you could name about 10 others who look technically ready to step up into a much higher level than they're currently at is really exciting. And if, it is going to be a four or five year project, then you would think that that's an absolutely perfect situation an almost IX type situation, really, uh, in terms of who um, Ten Hag has had to bring through to make up for the fact that he, he couldn't go out and spend 50, 60 million on, you know, uh, midfielders and centre backs. So he, he did have to go out and find, you know, a Gravenberg from the academy and, you know, Taliafico, these type of players are, you know, go to Mexico to bring in Alvarez and things like that. And, and, that's the type of manager that he is. He, he, and I think that's why, you know, rightly or wrongly, United have gone for him over Pochettino. They know he can, you know, work on a very, very slim budget. He can he can work with the environment and the structure that's there from a, you know, from a player point of view, at least. Um, whereas I think Pochettino probably would have wanted a bigger transfer kitty coming in. And he was a far more expensive manager to bring in in terms of the severance package that PSG would have required and the fact that Pochettino's salary and the salary of his coaching and, and back team uh, that he brings with him everywhere would be much higher than what Ten Hag would, would have demanded as well. So I, rightly or wrongly, there is an element of that. Uh, and I think when you know you see so many British journalists tweeting last night as to why if they've gone with Ten Hag over Pochettino, it makes no sense. I, I think that's a bit you know naive. And I think the obvious answers are the fact that you know, he, he's he's going to work on a more limited budget. He's going to work with the players that he's, he's given, certainly at a youth level. Uh, and he's, you know, proven that he can rebuild teams without having to go and, and make big, you know, exotic transfers. Uh, and I think that's really where the difference comes in between the two at this moment in time. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that Pochettino's stock has fallen a bit with a few failures in Paris as well. Led's huge result last night for the Irish women's team against Sweden. Um, I suppose one of those fixtures um, that you go into, you know you're going to be under the cosh, you know it's going to be uh, 11 women behind the ball. Um, Sweden obviously number two in the world and you know absolutely one of the best women's teams in the world over the past uh, decade or two. Um, but I mean... It's one of those games where you kind of, you know, you, you grit your teeth and, and you hope that, you know, maybe we get to half time. Um, maybe we hold out for a, a two, maybe a three goal deficit loss and you kind of take that, uh, pack, pack it in your bag and, and, and take it home uh, and regroup for, for some of the, the fixtures ahead where you, you hope to get actual results. But I mean, when Katie McCabe uh, struck just before half time and hit the back of the net, I mean, I, I don't think I've had a, a moment watching an Irish game since maybe Shane Long against Germany or um, uh, the the Italy game at the Euros where, Jesus, are we going to do it? You know, it was an absolutely unbelievable moment, um, having been absolutely unbelievably under the cosh for most of the first half. Um, and I, I suppose before the goal, it was kind of a little sneaky feeling um, that, you know, there were chances there to be had. I think McCabe had one chance in particular where she uh, she kind of rolled it out uh, out of her feet a couple of times but it was on her right foot um, and it was a little bit of a tame shot in the end but uh, to get into half time 1-0 up against Sweden um, absolutely incredible um, the second half then I suppose you know it probably was coming um, you know to, to be able to hold out as far as 80 minutes against uh, a, a, such a quality side where you've 
with players from 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 some of the best teams in Europe at the moment. But uh, an unbelievable moment for uh, for the Irish women's team, and it feels like um, it feels like a kind of a barrier has been broken now that you know we we can punch above our weight and we can kind of lift the team into that say that that upper tier of of, of nations around Europe where we can compete. Uh, qualify for tournaments, and uh, I suppose one step closer now to to World Cup qualification in uh, in Australia next year. Yeah, it, it, it was fantastic. Like, like you said, I mean, going into the game, um, you knew that it was going to be like a really staunch rearguard action. Like I was tweeting, it was like watching the Cholos on my only team. There was two banks of four, or a bank of four and a bank of five, um, across our box nearly. For twenty minutes at one stage, given the pressure that the Swedes are putting on, um, and like I suppose it has to be remembered as well that um, Ireland were doing it with a very much patched up back line, and um, they were missing their first three choices at left centre back, uh, and they were playing a midfielder and Megan Conley there, and Chloe Mustaki was making her competitive debut at wing back in front of her, and um, so like in Sweden, obviously knew that, and they definitely targeted that side of our defence much more than they did Jamie Finn and Neil Fahey, um, but. Like I think, especially in the first half, we rode our luck a little bit. I thought it was pretty impressive in the first half in the defensive sense. I did think we were struggling to have a plan to do what to do with the ball when we did get it. Now, that's understandable given how deep we were. Um, but the set piece was a neat little idea in terms of everyone was expecting the in-swinger from Katie. They brought it out to Megan Connolly and it ended up dropping to Katie like it did. <clears throat> but I was so impressed with, like you said, Kev, how staunch they were in the second half when they knew that Sweden were going to just throw everything at them. And I think the second half is when it got properly impressive. Courtney Brosnan really came into her own. She's been under a little bit of pressure for her place, being second choice at Everton. Um, but she she was great. Uh, I thought the back line was brilliant. Everyone just really dug in. And even after conceding the equaliser, it would have been very easy to drop their heads um, and, and for Sweden to kind of feel the momentum with them and, and maybe go on and win the game. But like a point, as you said, it, like it's more what it stands for. I think like that, that goes alongside the draw away to Germany in that 20, Euro 2016 qualification campaign or the draw in Bari against Italy in the 2010 campaign that the men got as like the best away qualification result of my lifetime for, for any Irish team. I mean, it's an incredible result. And um, it really puts things, really puts them in the driving seat for a playoff. And Finland have two games left. Sorry, uh, yeah, Finland have two games left. We have three, including one against Finland. And basically, if we beat Georgia, who we bet 11-0 at home, as we should do, and we beat Finland, we're true, we're done, it's over. Uh, and we can even afford to draw with Finland and avoid defeat and match their uh, result in our last game, and we're there. So like, it's it's a really brilliant position we put ourselves in, but it's more about the hype, I suppose, that's after creating. Um, in a professional, a professional capacity, I was involved in the Sky campaign that launched last week, the I Believe stuff. It was nice to see a little bit of buzz around that. This result is going to do multitudes more for the women's game than that ever could, really. I suppose, in a way, it's a pity there's not another game till June. You'd love if this was game one of a, of a window where they could play again and really kind of keep the momentum up. But you'd hope now, with qualification being a realistic aim, with so many players like Katie McCabe playing a starring role for a really big women's Super League team with um, with Denise O'Sullivan playing a starring role for an American team. You'd hope that the sort of profile of players we have now as well, the momentum's really going to come. And hopefully, like you said, we're celebrating qualification for a first ever tournament uh, next year. 
Yeah, it definitely feels like a moment, you know, when that goal went in. And, and you know, as you all said, it, it, you know, for me, it was kind of, you know, Matt Hall and McAteer kind of stuff from 2001, 2002 in terms of excitement uh, and just, you know, your own personal reaction to an incredible um, Irish football moment. You know, you know, you, you think of the dominance of this Sweden side, the, the, the quality of that squad and where they're all playing and, and the level that they're playing at domestically, um, certainly compared to us. And then even more significantly, you know, missing Diane Caldwell, missing Savannah McCarthy, you know, playing a formation that we were not overly familiar with, really, if we're being honest. And just to get that level of performance out of the team and the squad overall was really, you know, one of the great results in Irish football from from uh, from any team that I, I've certainly watched in my lifetime. And, and it's great that it's been building up to this to this moment in the last few years in terms of, you know, sold out matches in Tala, Vera Paul completely changing the atmosphere around the squad that was, you know, completely negative from, you know, the Delaney days and having to get changed in Dublin airport and hand back jerseys and tracksuits and all that horrific stuff we used to hear. And um, all of a sudden now, you know, I feel, as you said, the Sky campaign and, you know, the viewing figures that we saw last night were, were phenomenal, really. Um, up there with the rugby, for example. So, you know, Irish football is certainly heading in, the direction for the women that we we kind of hoped it would but now that they're delivering on the pitch and that they seem to have a structure in place you know managerially and and professionally uh and throw in the the fact that we have an x-factor in katie mccabe who's just an absolutely phenomenal footballer uh not just for ireland but for arsenal as well obviously you know the best team in england so you know you always need somebody like that as well that everybody else can kind of get behind and and know that they're going to deliver for them no matter what happens and and i think that's a, obviously a huge part of or success as well, um, and the fact that she's able to embrace that pressure consistently is, you know, massive for us. And and um, hopefully that continues through the summer. And you know, if we can get that Georgia win and, and hopefully that draw against Finland, um, and to bounce back the way we did after a very disappointing draw against Slovakia, uh, has been really phenomenal from the squad. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, how how they negotiate their way through the summer because I think everything's really in their favour now as opposed to being in Finland's favour. Um, and, you know, the momentum that we have as well, even though we're a couple of months away from their next game, is absolutely massive. And, and I think, you know, it'll be a phenomenal achievement if we do qualify and, and I think it'll be well-deserved. Yeah, I mean, the contrast from uh, from the before times, if, if you want to call it that, under, under the Laney era, um, as you said, with um, the team having to change in Dublin Airport and, and share tracksuits. And I saw a picture, um, um, I forget now who put it up on Twitter, but uh, uh, pictures of the team um, in the corridors as you go through Dublin Airport, uh, I think is, is a nice illustration of how far we've come with the women's team. Um, in terms of individual performances, um, I think there's one player in particular that I'd, I'd like to point out. Um, and I think... As stories go, she has a she has an interesting one, um, and I mean, over the last couple of decades, even Ireland has had a, a good um, history with uh, with um, goalkeepers, I suppose, performing above their abilities when they, when they put on the Irish shirt. But every time I see I've seen Courtney Brosnan um, for Ireland, I thought she's been absolutely fantastic. And again last night, absolutely colossus over the course of the game. She was born in New Jersey. Um, playing at the moment at Everton, and I don't think she's even first choice. I think she's uh, second or third choice at Everton. But she's taken her chance for Ireland. I think she only she only got in because of injury um, uh, last year. Um, but she's absolutely performing fantastically. And um, I mean, 
another kind of feel good story about this team that we have someone from abroad coming in and and being kind of becoming one of us in a way uh, and and it's great to be seen celebrated and and see her performing so well in in such massive games yeah it was, it was brilliant like it was real richard dunn in moscow type stuff at some stages from her she was it, it felt like um, as the more sweden got on top she was kind of our our, our only one kind of keeping them out you know as the as the defense got a little bit stretched um, and <clears throat> as you said like it's it's great <clears throat> to have that we kind of have that little tradition in the last couple of years as well of maybe players who aren't um, starters for their club becoming very pivotal for our national team. And uh, certainly like, uh, the, there was calls for uh, the Brighton keeper to get in ahead of her. Uh, I don't think she's going to be able to be dropped anytime soon after what she did last night. Um, and like it, like you said, it's brilliant as well to kind of draw on the wider dis- diaspora. Um, it's like overall, just a great story. There's a couple of stories like that in the, cl- in the team, like Lucy Quinn, uh, finally coming in after a long while, waiting for clearance and stuff, from, uh, like born in England to Irish, Irish grandparents and things like that. There is a nice mix in the team of, you know, girls based at home, uh, Irish girls gone abroad, and then that kind of diaspora stuff that that we have had throughout our history. And yeah, I think Courtney Brosnan was Courtney Brosnan. Uh, didn't even win uh, player of the match last night. Katie McCabe got it, uh, which feels a little bit like defaulting to her settling for the default because like Courtney Brosnan was definitely player of the match. I mean, I know Katie scored a deflected goal, but Jesus Christ, like the goalkeeper who kept out the second best team in the world was the player of the match. And um, so she has the if I'm if I if I may be so bold, she has the three at the back player of the match from last night. Yeah, and if you know, talking about stories, you know, obviously Megan Campbell didn't feature, but you know, if she does play for Ireland again, that'll be her first, you know, run in, in an Irish jersey for three years as well. So there's all these different kind of sub stories that we're seeing, you know, across Irish football, and you know, obviously the League of Ireland as well. And you know, we have actually has 17 year old Goey United defender now moving to Newcastle, uh, apparently. Uh, and we've seen, you know, the stories under Kenny and, and of Benny and stuff like that. Now the Irish women's team seems to have all these little narratives like Brosnan and, and all the other players coming through as well, which is really exciting. And, you know, it, that kind of stuff just gets the fans behind the team even more. And, and you know, Brosnan had a pretty tough time with domestically whenever she has featured for Everton. They've, they just seem to get battered for some reason, um, which probably doesn't you know, help help her case domestically. But I think for Ireland, she's been absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, yeah, at only 26 years of age, it'd be tough to kind of see anybody displacing her in in the near future. And it's, you know, such an important and, and often derided position really horrifically in, in the women's game. Um, You know, obviously we, we see mistakes from goalkeepers go viral far more on the women's side than we do in the men's side, for example. Um, So for us to have a real quality, hopefully now number one going forward is, is, is a huge... Um, a huge part of our setup as well, so it's it's really exciting times, and and you know, absolutely robbed <laughs> last night by McCabe getting player of the match, but thankfully they have Phil's nod now with his, uh, you know, cutting ribbons all over Dublin City these days. You know, I think that's that's a pretty big, pretty big nod. You know, so uh, you know, Sunday Business Post contributor as well. So you know, I guess that's bigger than any any award from RT as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the three of the backs, uh, seat of approval there for for Courtney Brosnan, um, and uh, another player just quickly to mention, obviously, is uh, is Chloe Mustaki, who made her competitive debut last night, back from um, uh, lymphoma uh, as well as a cruciate ligament injury. Um, absolutely fantastic to see um, 
local player as well at Shelburne uh, to come into the side. I think it was a little bit unexpected to see her start, but again she came in and she uh, she justified her performance. I thought over the over the course of her, uh, uh, the ninety minutes. Yeah, she battled for absolutely everything, flung herself in the way of Anton that she could. Uh, herself and Megan Connolly, I thought, scrapped really hard. Uh, in completely well, they would I, by all accounts there was. Uh, they were training in that in that sort of shape and that sort of personnel for the week, but in like in terms of a battle test that uh, completely lacking any sort of battle test. And I thought they both scrapped really hard. But amazing story for Chloe Mustaki. She was saying herself last night post match a year ago she was doing the punditry from the studio, and uh, now she's kind of back and back back to back starts uh, for the women's team. First competitive game now, and um, an incredible story. Really, really brilliant. Uh, and hopefully she can she can build on that for the rest of the campaign now. Um, and, and keep going because I, I think again she's somebody who'll probably put it up to um to the, to the returning players to get back in because you know you, when you play that well you kind of winner stays on and you, you, you hold on to the jersey if you play that well as far as I'm concerned Um, I suppose in terms of the women's game it wasn't all great news last night and a little bit of controversy came out um from comments from Kenny Shield as the Northern Ireland manager after their uh Hammering at the hands of England last night, um, and I mean, when I saw the tweets coming through with it, with the comments, uh, it, it, it was bizarre to read them. And you kind of it maybe took a two or three reads to kind of to realize exactly what he was trying to say. Um, and you know, you can kind of imagine a manager probably gets into a stream of consciousness and, and, and spits things out. But then I actually heard him speaking the comments, and it was very kind of meticulous. You know, he was kind of really putting a lot of thought into what he said. And then he summarized it by saying, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, and, and some of the comments uh, that he said, you know, in the women's game that I've noticed when a team concedes a goal, they concede a second one in, in a very short period of time, right through the whole spectrum of the women's game, because girls and women are more emotional than men. So they, take, they, so they don't take this conceding a goal very well, which I mean, when you consider <laughs> who's more emotional uh, when it comes to the, you know, the playing of sport, and you see some of uh, some of how uh, uh, the men react. Uh, even last night, we had a few examples of the Chelsea game. Um, you know, uh, Rhys James tweeted earlier today about you know the emotions having come out of a, a, such a tough game against Real Madrid. Um, an absolutely baffling comment. Um, and obviously, he's kind of stepped back today. He, they released a statement apologising for um, for any offence caused. It felt a little bit hollow. I thought. Um, but for a man who's been in, involved in the game for for decades, um, he's managing Northern Ireland and and going to the Euros this summer. Um, I think it was a record um, attendance for for Northern Irish women's game last night. So you know it should be coming off a high. Obviously, the, uh, you know down here we had a great result against Sweden, but um, like common that really um, uh, tarnish a lot of things. And it's and it's nearly one step forward and two steps back in a lot of way that this is getting the highlights or the headlines today rather. Than, uh, than the big performances uh, for, for Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it just leads you totally to despair. You know, you can't um, you can't begin to imagine where that comes from, you know, where what sort of place he thought that was being reasonable. Um, you know, to, like, instead of applying any sort of rigour uh, to the tactical setup, to the performance of individuals, to kind of blanket it like that, um, like it's you know it's it's, it's Stone Age stuff. And when you hear it from somebody who is supposed to be an advocate of the women's game, uh, it makes it all the worse. Um, but like it's there's also this wider point about like you know you, you heard it said about players like Wayne Rooney all the time. But if you took like the anger and aggression out of his 
game he wasn't the same player that's anger's an emotion like like <laughs> emotions aren't inherently a negative thing and for him to have kind of gendered them and paint them as being negative is frankly it's fucking mad but like i mean he, he's also picked a really bad time in football history to be talking about conceding goals in short periods of time being a kind of uniquely emotional woman problem when you know uh, uh, Kareem Benzema scores two goals in two minutes against Chelsea in the Champions League quarterfinals and then in the round before that scores two goals in less than a minute against PSG and you're like it's it's football it's it's a human reaction emotion absolutely is a part of it mm, but it's it a human it, exactly it happens and it's a human reaction it's not a gendered reaction and it's not something uniquely negative to women's football like it, it just beggars belief and you just wonder how somebody who is supposed to be immersed and an advocate for the game and like you said coming off a record crowd for an irish a uh, northern irish women's game going to a major tournament this summer uh, in practically a home major tournament as well in in the fact that it's going to be in, in england and um, for him to be saying that i mean you, you just really do wonder uh, about the wider state of things and the wider progress that can be made when people like that hold relatively important positions yeah, I think the interesting part for me, and when you know, we, we talked earlier about managers being overly emotional and, you know, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but this didn't feel like that sort of thing of an angry manager who just lost 5-0 in front of a record crowd and, you know, just this Freudian slip. This felt like something that he wanted to get out there, that he wanted to just get off his chest and that he, you know, he'd almost planned to say this statement long before, you know, he actually got it out there with the fact that, oh, I probably shouldn't say this, but, mm. you know, that kind of... This wasn't a slip of the tongue. This was genuinely how he feels about, you know, women in football, which is, you know, bizarre in so many, for so many reasons. Like momentum is a huge part of football. You know, like teams, once they get on top, sometimes they do score three, four, five, you know. And as we said, you know, emotional isn't a gender thing. You know, it's it's part of game. It's part of the game. It's part of life. And it's definitely part of football. Um, and, and especially... We, you know, you're coming up against such a talented side in that England side. I mean, they have an absolutely phenomenal squad. Um, you know, and I just think he was almost kind of deflecting his own personal embarrassment from such a, a disappointing result and, and really focusing on the gender thing when it was just so unnecessary at a time when, you know, women's football is becoming, you know, <laughs> such a positive thing in the game with, you know, 90,000 people turning up for Real Madrid against Barcelona for two legs, uh, you know, which is inconceivable a few years ago you know we've talked about the success of the Irish team obviously the English team have all been quite well supported but you know they're certainly you know getting a lot more exposure now through Sky and and the WSL which is fantastic um, and obviously the A-League in Australia is doing a huge amount as well um, for the W League and that's why we're seeing so many successful players come from Australia now and playing for Arsenal, Chelsea, Brighton etc so it's just such bad timing as well for him to to really bring such a an, a non-issue to, to the fore here in terms of women being overly emotional and that's why they conceded you know goals so quickly and you know the apology again today was so weak and, and it's just such a left such a horrifically bad feeling now I feel around this Northern Ireland squad going into what should have been you know the biggest tournament of their their careers now I mean if it if an Irish coach had done that and you know, we, we had our two games to go to qualify. I'd feel really sad about the squad and, and, and you know, the manager in general. So it's it's just a real shame that it's come out. It's such a progressive time for the women's game and it's kind of brought, you know, all these 
people out of the woodwork online as well as oh finally somebody can say it again and, and all these type of things that you know none of us have any interest in in seeing or hearing about when it comes to the gender debate in football and and it's it's really set them back and it, that's just you know a real shame for the the northern ireland squad in general So we leave it there, so okey doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>